This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm your host, Peggy Hodgkins, coming to you from Moab, Utah. Today we're talking about the modeling of the Colorado River system. This modeling is used to predict future flow scenarios and can be used to influence river management and policies. If we have the courage to use these tools in an exploratory way and take their output seriously and let the science inform the policy, try to minimize the the politics driving the science, these tools are incredibly powerful, but they also have to be trusted. A very important part of it is making sure that people have the ability to access it, to understand it, to be able to use it. A lot of communication has to happen to make these tools useful. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Kevin Wheeler, an Oxford Martin Fellow at the Environmental Change Institute of the University of Oxford and principal of Water Balance Consulting. Kevin has worked since 2000 on multiple issues surrounding the Colorado River and is an integral part of the river modeling and translating the model and its usefulness to different stakeholders. The Colorado River Simulation System, or acronym CRSS, is a modeling tool that was initially developed and continues to be developed by the Bureau of Reclamation, so the U.S. federal government, and started back in the, in the 1970s and into the early 80s, uh, really as a Fortran program. It was really to sort of help work on simulating how Lake Mead and Lake Powell would be operating under different circumstances. Uh, this Fortran program and computer code evolved through time And starting in the 1990s, it got transferred over to another platform called Riverware from the University of Colorado, that what this platform did was make it much more accessible to other stakeholders. So this tool essentially becomes a platform by which stakeholders can test and try different ideas and explore different policies on how the river can be operated. So what are the inputs to this model? Yeah, the inputs into the model are I mean, a couple of basic ones. One is what the natural hydrology is, or we say a naturalized hydrology. So what you have to do is take a historical gauge data and then back out how much water you think was diverted before that. And this is what Bureau of Reclamation does. You, you naturalize it. So take out the effect of the reservoirs and upstream depletions one of the inputs is, is, is the inflows. The other major input are the demands. And those demands, um, as we know, change through time. It's the intersection of the supply and the demands are the two major inputs. The other major input is how the system is actually managed and operated. So the logic, um, logical statements, those are also really considered input into the model as well because you're trying to replicate how really the the law of the river works and functions. How close has the simulation come to the actual modern river system? When we run CRSS, what we do is we run a lot of different potential futures. So anything from wet futures to dry futures. And so what Reclamation has historically done is they use uh, the historical record going back to to, to 1906, 1908, they assume the future is going to be similar to the past. 
they run a method called index sequential method, which, which tries different starting dates in the past. So you try some really wet periods and some really dry periods. And so when you look at the outputs of the CRSS model, you don't just get a single projection, you get a cone of possibilities that go off into the future. And one of the things we're really seeing now is, well, we're tending to those low side of, those, of that cone all the time. Previously, we kind of treated that cone as sort of equally probable. Now we're saying, well, maybe those, those wet years back in the early 1900s really aren't probable anymore. And really we're, we're seeing much drier scenarios and we have to rethink how we resample the past as we use the model into the future. So how do you disseminate the information so that you get some feedback on your model? Yeah, it's a, it's a, real, it's a really interesting question. Something that, that I've actually been focused on for pretty much my whole, my whole water career is how do, you, how do you share these complex modeling outputs with stakeholders, everyone that wants to, wants to know what the outputs are. And it's, it's complicated because you have multiple dimensions. You have many, many different elements in the river. You have many different possible futures, and you have a time series from now until 2060 or 2100. So you're, you have this, this kind of complex dimension space. And so what you have to do is figure out ways to present that often graphically for people to understand. And so what Reclamation does is they run the model themselves, and then they also provide the outputs to a variety of, of stakeholders. Um, that are part of the sort of technically oriented stakeholders. And they can either take these, these outputs and look at them themselves, analyze them themselves, or other stakeholders uh, will run the model themselves and try different ideas here and there. But it, it, you have to take th- those cones and figure out ways to derive statistics from it to say, well, there's a, we think there's a 20% probability of this, if that, and, and, and try to tease out the, the statistics from it. It's hard, it's messy, but it, it, it's, a, it's a critical part to be able to make use of those complex tools for the docks in the, in, in the reservoirs or, or for, the, for the, the fish biologists. And so are most stakeholders uh, receptive of the models or the outcomes? In, in general, yes, but there's, there's, always, there's always model skeptics and people that don't understand the models. And there's, and there's, there's always reason to be skeptical of models as well. Uh, you have to understand that models don't tell you the right answer, but they give you more information than you would have had in their absence. So there are some stakeholders that just don't like models at all because they don't understand or they, they think they're trying to tell you what the future is going to be. And that's not necessarily true. Um, there's other people that may rely too much on models or believe their, their, their models too much and back up and say, well, this is really just a pile of assumptions that we're making Hopefully they're pretty good assumptions. So yeah, there's, a, there's a big spectrum. But one of the powers of this model in particular is reclamations worked very hard to build trust. Initially, everyone sort of equally didn't like the model, um, <laughs> but there was nothing, there's nothing better than that out there that could really simulate the complexity. Um, and then bit by bit, as people get trained in the trend, that stakeholder base would expand. So more and more people could use it. Now, it's not the perfect thing for sure. Yeah. Has the Colorado River model been used by decision makers uh, with regards to water management and policy? Well, CRSS has really been a cornerstone of the decision-making process 
for the Colorado River, at least since I've been involved in 2000, the model would be continuously used by all the major stakeholders that had the, the, the technical capacity, either in-house or would hire consultants. And sometimes I was one of those consultants to do this. And so one, one stakeholder might propose a particular policy or variation. And then it's very difficult to know, well, what the implications of that policy is until you have a way to test it. Someone who proposes an idea, then everyone else can test it out by putting it in their model and trying things and reclamation disseminate sort of the, the implications of those possible policy modifications or new ideas. For example, the ICS mechanism where this, the lower basin states could store water over years and, and use it in the next years, and Mexico is able to do the same. Those things are all tested out within CRSS model to try to get the logic refined to be able to make it into a policy. Kevin put out a paper in August of 2019 in conjunction with the Center for Colorado River Studies at Utah State University. And the paper aimed to explore ideas of how the Colorado River system could be operated in a very different way, especially in light of the fact that sometimes institutional gridlock keeps stakeholders from looking at more creative management alternatives. The purpose of the white paper that we wrote was, well, let's lay out a whole bunch of different ideas that are possibly far out of the box and use the model to test out a few of them. The most significant one that we really examined was how could you operate the system much more cohesively if you combined Lake Powell and Lake Mead and you determined the shortages and the surplus of the system based on the combined storage of the two rather than the individual pool elevations of the reservoirs. All of the management paradigms that are going on now are really triggered based on, well, what's the elevation of this reservoir versus that reservoir? Really start to think that's kind of a distorted way to think of things because it really starts treating one reservoir as sort of the property of the upper basin, the lower reservoir is the property of the lower basin, but really they're just, they're two large buckets connected by the Grand Canyon without a lot of difference between them. So one of the paradigms was, well, if the lower basin is going to be shorted, don't just look at Lake Mead, look at the combination of Lake Mead and Lake Powell together to make those determinations and start operating the system in a, in a more, more, more cohesive way, which kind of follows scientific common sense as well. So some of the other ones we looked at, and these aren't ones that we were advocating for necessarily, but we wanted to examine some of the, the things that have been talked about a lot, like the fill mead first is one potential management strategy where you would essentially use Lake Mead as the primary storage reservoir and Lake Powell would be a backup storage reservoir. Or some people have advocated for even re- removing, for removing Glen Canyon Dam, but the notion of using Lake Mead as the primary reservoir. And the arguments would be, well, that would, could save evaporation losses and allow more, more natural flows in the Grand Canyon. We also examined the opposite of Phil Powell first. If you were to use Lake Powell as the primary reservoir and Lake Mead, let that be uh, much, much more empty. Um, then we also examined operating the Glen Canyon Dam for more natural flows, as well as uh, using the Flaming Gorge to back up Lake Powell more. So a, a bunch of different alternatives. But the the one on combined storage was the most significant one. And what sort of feedback have you gotten from these models that are, as you said, pretty far out of the box? 
I think yeah. it's something that, that resonated with a lot of people, a lot of stakeholders, a lot of states have been very interested in, in this and, and it, it, it kind of follows some common sense too. So we, we, we've gotten a lot of, a lot of very positive responses um, and given a lot of talks and uh, four different stakeholders about, well, this is what it might look like. It gets to some of the, some of the basics of the, of the Colorado River Compact and, and well, how might the compact either be adapted or this new paradigm fit within the compact because it has served a purpose um, up until this point, but um, like all things, things need to be, need to change and be evolved and evolve. So there's a lot of interest in it, but it's early in the stages right now. I think people are starting to scratch their heads and say, well, maybe this is something we should look a little bit more deeply at. That's what the next several years are going to be about is diving into some of those alternatives. What would be some of the actual concrete changes that people would see if some of these scenarios were put into action? Well, one of the, one of the really fascinating things that we, we, we sort of realized in this process was the ability to do things, particularly for the Grand Canyon, that had people kind of written off after a while and, and started to think that, that, okay, the Grand Canyon is a completely engineered system and really bound up by these deep politics from the 1920s that are really dictating and, and manipulating the environment based on, based on, the, on the politics from the 1920s. Well, really, we see that if you were to make that shift, make these determinations based on the combined storage, it actually allows a lot more flexibility in operating those two reservoirs. Uh, the environmental benefits of operating things in different ways could be very, very substantial if we're able to remove those handcuffs of the, the compact point and the, some of the, those elements that have gotten ingrained within our institutional thinking if we're able to remove those, those handcuffs, then there's a lot of possibilities in, in terms of being able to manage in the, uh, the Grand Canyon for, for better ecosystems and more natural, natural flows within limits of what the sediment will allow. So in some ways, the research kind of ended up putting Grand Canyon back on the table again, uh, when it had sort of been written off in some ways as a ditch between two buckets. What additions or adaptations to the model do you foresee in the next five or 10 years? Well, probably one of the biggest things that, that the model is undergoing and thinking right now is we have to take into account the notion of non-stationarity. So the, the idea that the past is going to represent the future, we know now all over the world that's not true. Every water manager is, recognizes that, that we can't make assumptions of the future based on our, our measurements of the past. It can help inform things, but it, we're, we're, the trends that we're seeing makes it very, um, very clear that that's not reliable. So now we're, we're entering an era, what we often say, of sort of deep uncertainty where things are happening that are unprecedented. So the modeling needs to reflect that. We need to look at a lot more potential futures and not assume an underlying statistical distribution. And so how can we operate the system in the most robust way possible, as opposed to, well, if if the mean is this, then we're going to operate it in a a way that satisfies the mean. Now we have to start thinking in terms of, well, let's eliminate any presumption of a statistical distribution and say, we need to operate this system maybe down to a 10 or 11 million acre foot inflow into Lake Powell. And how can we operate the system and satisfy the needs of the users and the environment and and all the uses of the river 
in the most robust way for a lot of different potential futures. Uh, so, so it's a diff- it's a change of thinking from t- traditional statistical stochastic modeling to more of a deep uncertainty. Maybe the last five or ten or twenty years are going to be much more representative of the future than the flows back in the nineteen. 19- 20s, which we know were incredibly, incredibly wet. Yeah. And we shouldn't be thinking of those anymore as, as, as relevant futures. With regards to all the creative ability of the modeling scenarios, you have talked about how these tools are incredibly powerful, but that they also need to be trusted and communicated properly. How is that being done? Well, that's really in the, that's really in, in the, in the court of reclamation. They want that to be the central negotiating platform by what people use. They really have to be in the one the, the ones in the driver's seat to make sure that people have it and can understand it too. It takes training. It's it's, it's something that, that that really takes an engineering degree to kind of change and manipulate around. But a lot of people can understand how it works. What I've done a lot of, and, and with whether that's with Utah State with the NGOs, I enjoy translating the model and and showing how useful it is for stakeholders to try different things. So uh, that, that's my main focus is, is the stakeholder engagement side of it. Well, thanks, Kevin. I really enjoyed talking to you. And this is a lot of good information for folks around here to hear about. Hope it was useful for sure. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab Media is by Sophia Fisher. Newsletter by Rhonda Cook. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. And the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.